So the text that we're in now in the book of 1 Corinthians speaks to an issue that all of us wrestle with, a temptation that is before us no matter what age you are, no matter what kind of life you live, and that is the temptation to seek a high status in this world. Because that allure for high status in this world is strong no matter what phase of life you're in. If you get four six-year-old boys together, they will compete to see who can throw a ball the farthest and turn everything into a competition in good fun. But if you watch carefully, they will also start to sort out the pecking order, right? Who's in charge? Who's the highest among them? Who's the best among them? And who's not? That begins at an early age. And by the time we get to high school, we know in the high school cafeteria which table is the cool kids table and everybody wants to sit at the cool kids table, right? And that allure when you're that age is strong. I want those people to respect me. I want to be cool in everybody's eyes. It sets in there and it continues on through adult life where many of us are looking into phones and feeling a strong allure to see how many people liked my post. How many followers do I have now? How many people saw that and do they like what I put out there? A temptation to seek status in the world can even invade a place as holy as a Sunday school class where we can be faced with the temptation to be the one who appears to have the best answers and the one who appears the wisest in the class. We can even turn good places like that into a competition for status over each other. There is a difference between wanting to win the pickleball match and wanting to be known as the best pickleball player in town. Even good things we can turn into status symbols and chasing after status. And the Lord would meet us there this morning and say, whatever that allure is for you, he's got something better for you. The Corinthian church had fallen hard into that temptation. And their desire to one-up each other and for all of them to appear the one who is the best and the greatest in the church, they were stomping all over each other and it was tearing their church apart. We saw the beginnings of Paul's words to them last week and we continue in them this week as we talk about one form of worldly wisdom that's very particular and that is seeking high status here in the world. If you're just joining us, we're walking through a book called 1 Corinthians in a sermon series we're calling Holy Love. And 1 Corinthians was a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth to call them to turn back from the rampant self-centeredness and immorality that was so common in their city and that they were falling to back into a life of holiness and love. And that's why we're calling this series Holy Love. Today we say, what does holy love look like when we consider that temptation to seek a high spot in this world? We're going to read 1 Corinthians 1, verses 19 to 29 today. Hear these words from the words of the Lord. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, 
But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. These words are written by our God, and they place a call on all of us, whether you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, or a young believer in Jesus Christ, or a mature follower who has been following him for years. The call these words place upon all of us is to turn from seeking a high status in this world to seeking Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to give you from this text this morning four reasons to turn from seeking status in this world to seeking Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to them and saying to them essentially, guys, what you are seeking is not as good as you think it is. They're stepping all over each other, trying to get to the top ranks in the church, trying to get everyone else's respect. And Paul is saying, guys, what you have in Christ is so much better. Four different ways he says that that we'll walk through. Four reasons to turn from seeking status in this world to seeking Jesus. The first is that chasing status will blind you to what is most important. Seeking status will blind you to what is most important. We see this in verses 19 and 20 where Paul quotes Isaiah and then applies it to his present day. He quotes a very popular part of Isaiah. Jesus quotes the same section to the Pharisees at another point in the Gospels where Isaiah writes, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now he does not say I will destroy the wise. He says, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the same with the discerning. He won't thwart the discerning. He says, I will thwart the discernment of the discerning. Well, what does that mean? Well, to open that up, we have to look back at what Isaiah was saying. In that broader chapter, Isaiah is giving a prophecy where the Lord is saying, I am about to do a mighty wonder that you cannot imagine. The great wonder was that his judgment was going to fall on the nation of Israel. Uh, They were going to be conquered by a foreign army and taken off to exile. And what the Lord says is so amazing about this is he says, your wisest people won't see it coming. And when it comes, despite their wrong predictions, their wisdom is going to look silly. God makes the wisdom of this world into foolishness. So when the highest officials in the court get up and say, oh king, yes, go to battle, you will win. And the highest sages stroke their beard and think on it and they say, yes, yes, we are safe, we are protected, no one will conquer us. And the false prophets who tell the king exactly what he wants to hear, oh yes, the Lord has spoken, this nation will never be conquered. All of their false wisdom is about to be exposed for the folly that it is because destruction is coming, great wonders are coming, and none of them see it coming. 
So the day will come when the king looks at the highest official and says, how did you not see this coming? When he calls the prophets of the Lord who were false to him and says, you told me this was going to happen in the name of the Lord, but instead this happened. So their great wisdom was going to be exposed for the folly that it was. They could not see the wonder that God was doing, Isaiah says, because their hearts were far from God. You can have all the wisdom in the world, but if your heart's far from God, you cannot see what he is up to. From that, we pull that first point. Chasing status, as all those wise men were doing, will blind you to what is most important. Now, Paul says that that is what is happening in his day as well in verse 20. He says, where's the wise, where's the scribe, where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world, right? He's saying this is happening now too. He didn't just destroy the wisdom of the wise back then, but he's doing it here. God is doing a great work, he says, spreading the gospel throughout the Greco-Roman world. It is even being proclaimed before men like Festus and perhaps even before Caesar. But the highest and loftiest of the people, despite their great wisdom, are completely missing out on it. And their wisdom is being shown how foolish it really is. They're blind to the most important things. This is actually a pattern that happens many times through Scripture. God does a great thing, and the wisest people in the land don't see it coming and don't understand it because their hearts are far from God. Uh, maybe the first time it, that it happened was in Egypt in the Exodus, at least the first time it was really clearly documented. It may have happened in the flood as well. Uh, there were high officials in Egypt, right? Those magicians in Pharaoh's courts could take their stick and throw it on the ground and the stick would turn into a snake. I mean, that is some powerful stuff. These guys had great wisdom. They understood. Some of them could predict the future. I mean, incredible things that these magicians could do. But what none of them predicted was 80-year-old Moses walking into the courts of Pharaoh and saying, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may come and worship me. And none of them predicted the terrible plagues that would come upon Egypt and the great exodus of the Israelite people from Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea and the sea crashing back upon Pharaoh's army. All of the power of their great wise men, their great court officials, even Pharaoh himself, all that wisdom wound up just looking silly because they did not see the exodus coming and they could not stop it. Isaiah said the same thing will happen at the great judgment God brought upon his people Israel. The great wise men in the day didn't see it coming and their wisdom was exposed for the foolishness that it was. Jesus says that this happened when he came. He is walking the earth. God is finally coming to earth. The greatest work that God has yet done in human history. God walking around in the flesh and people didn't recognize him right he came into his own and his own did not receive him the pharisees watched him do his incredible miracles and preach with so much authority and said mm, i think he's got a demon in him that explains what's going on here right all of their lofty wisdom and they could not figure out that this one was the messiah and so jesus says to them you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that testify about me, 
and you can't see me. And he says, how could you understand the scriptures when you seek the glory that comes from men and not the glory that comes from God? So here were people who were experts in the Hebrew Bible, experts in our Old Testament, who had greater portions of it memorized than you and I will ever have memorized, read it more times than maybe any of us will ever read it. But because they were using it to get a leg up on each other, to get glory that men give, to get praise and honor for themselves, they could not see the meaning of the scripture. They couldn't understand it. And so all of their wisdom and all of their study was shown to be foolish and fruitless because their hearts were far from God and they were seeking the glory that came from men. So if we seek status in this world, no matter what you become an expert on, even if it's the scriptures, it will blind us to what is most important if we are trying to get ahead in the world instead of seeking first the kingdom of heaven. One way to explain maybe what this feels like, what the experience is like of chasing after status or money or anything and and the truths of the spiritual world just kind of becoming dark and blind to you. It's a lot like playing a video game, if you've ever played a video game. Now, I know some of you have never bothered to pick one up. Just trust me that it's like this. Others of you know this experience for well. If you get into that game that you're playing. Your eyes are glued to that screen. Your hands are on the controllers. It's like the whole rest of the world just goes dim, doesn't it? Right? And you're, you know, in my house, we've been playing Mario Kart with the kids a lot lately. So you're rounding that corner and dodging that shell that's coming. And then you jump over the thing and woo, and then you cross the finish line. Woo! Yeah, so much fun. And it is like you're suddenly blind to the outside world. It's dark out there. You don't see what's going on anymore. And you don't hear what people are saying to you as much because the voices around you are duller because you are focused on that thing. So you can have your attention totally drawn by that game and you're going after it and going around this curve and almost up to the finish line and your wife can say, all right, bye, I'm going to the store. And you can say, okay, bye, you keep going, right? And then you finish the game and whoo, and then where did my wife go, all right? Because whatever was going out there, you're, you're just, you're deaf to, you're blind to, you're not paying attention to it. Your eyes are focused on the game. Now, if you want to spend your whole day off playing your PlayStation, I'm not telling you not to, but I am saying that that consuming experience that you have been through, that is what it is like to chase a high position in this world, to chase money in this world, to chase success in your career field. And see the more important things just grow dim and have your ears stop to what the Lord is doing. It can begin to feel like this world is all that there is and the spiritual realm just kind of becomes this dark, quiet place that you're blind to and deaf to because you're focused on this stuff. The Lord can even speak to you when you're in that state, just focused on getting ahead in this world. And you might respond in the same way. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm after my thing and doing my thing. You can become consumed in the same way. Chasing a high status in this world will blind you to what is most important. And so that means if you've had a hard time understanding the scriptures, and it's not because of intellectual difficulties, 
it's worth asking what's going on. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you don't understand the Scriptures, and how can you when you're seeking the glory that comes from men? Uh, Some of us, we read the Scriptures and we say, okay, I know how to read a book. I know how to understand what's going on, but I just have a hard time really like getting anything out of it, right? Well, it's worth asking, is there something in the world that you're seeking so hard after that your hearts become hardened to the Word, that your eyes have become blind to the Word, your ears have become deaf to the Word? I don't think that it is a coincidence that after 15 or 20 years of social media particularly training us to think in terms of how many people liked my post, how many followers do I have, that repeated experience of putting something out into the world and then the world judging it and it coming back to you and you finding out how well it did. After a decade or two of it training us to think in terms of what does the world think of what I am putting out there, especially if you're putting yourself out there, what does the world think of me seeking the glory that comes from men? I don't think it's a coincidence that that has now led to one of the greatest apostasies and exoduses from the church of God. How could we understand the scriptures if we're seeking the glory that comes from men? No, if we seek status in this world, if we seek approval from other people, if we seek an elite reputation, it blinds us to the things that are most important. And this is why seeking after Jesus is so much better Because what does he do? He does the opposite. He opens our eyes to the things that are most important. A Pharisee named Nicodemus comes and sits with Jesus, and Jesus says to him, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven, right? And Nicodemus is like, how am I going to do that, right? Enter into my mother's womb again and be born again? And Jesus essentially says, well, I can take care of that for you, right? Jesus alone gives that, that new birth that comes from God, the soft heart that loves to hear his word, the eyes that are opened. And so the opposite effect happens when we chase after him. You seek first the kingdom of heaven and all the other things are added beyond that. So you want those eyes open to the truth, seek after Jesus. You want better understanding in the scriptures when you read them, seek after Jesus. Seek the glory that comes from God and not the glory that comes from men. So that's our first point. Chasing status will blind you to what is most important. The second reason to turn from seeking status in the world to seeking Jesus is similar to it. Four points and they're both kind of pairs. The second is that you can't get wise enough or climb high enough to find God. You can't get wise enough, you can't climb high enough to find God. And what I mean when I say that is that you cannot learn enough about, say, birds uh, to suddenly discover who God is and how you can have a relationship with Him. You can't get there by learning everything there is to learn about birds. You can substitute birds for anything, planets, leaves, video games, whatever. You can't learn enough about it to suddenly discover who God is and how to have a relationship with him. Nor can you climb the corporate ladder high enough or the political ladder high enough or the entertainment ladder high enough to suddenly get to the level that God says, okay, now you're high enough that me and you can have a thing together. You cannot get to God by climbing higher or by growing wiser. We see this point in verse 21 really plainly. Paul says that since in the wisdom of God, 
the world did not know God through wisdom. Right? So he means worldly wisdom here. Right? You cannot get good enough at worldly wisdom to know God and discover God. You can't suddenly be a good enough public speaker that, oh, now you know God because you've gotten there. Uh, the world cannot know God through wisdom. The Corinthians were using worldly wisdom to get status over each other, and so Paul is going back and forth between talking about worldly wisdom and status. And that means in our day that if you want to climb the academic ladder, right, you want to go to college and get a really good degree and do so well that they offer you a scholarship to come back and get a master's, and then after that, you get a doctorate, and then you get your papers published, and you write books in a field, and you become the leading researcher in a new field, and suddenly you're the foremost authority in the world on whatever it is that you want to be an expert in, and everyone looks to you for your authoritative opinion on that thing. You can climb real high, but what you can't do is, is find God, because that's not the path to finding God. That means if you want to get really good at entertainment, you can learn an instrument and book your first gig and figure out what kind of music gets people moving and what kind of things turn into pop hits and then put some stuff on Spotify and Apple Music and get really popular and make all the connections in Nashville and fill stadiums and become the entertainment king or queen of the world. You can get high, but what you can't do is find God at the top of that ladder because he's not there and he's not revealing himself to the people at the top of that ladder for their status. It means that if you want to learn wisdom by traveling to the east like the Beatles did and like Led Zeppelin did and several others went over to the, maybe there's wisdom over there, the west isn't doing it for us, and you want to climb the, the fun-looking mountains there and talk to the long-bearded senseis there and see what they can teach you there, maybe you'll learn some stuff but you're not going to find God from the mouth of that sensei or at the top of that mountain because it's not the way to get to him. Uh, one way to compare this is like in the real world, climbing a, a real mountain. Uh, I might be thinking about this today because my parents are here and my dad and I have climbed some mountains together. But last summer, he and I and my son, uh, we, we climbed all the way up Mount LeConte in Tennessee, which is not the highest point in the Smoky Mountains, but it's the tallest mountain from bottom to top. And we got up there, and I don't know how much taller it is than the other mountains, but it feels like it's twice as high as the nearby mountains. It feels like you were looking from a plane window down on the Smoky Mountains. You're so high up, and it just feels heavenly up there. It feels kind of like you've made it into heaven. And you watch the clouds that are above the mountains come but when they get to you, it's a fog because you're that much higher. The cloud's hitting you, but it's above the other mountains. And then the sun goes down. It looks like the mountains are on fire. And then the stars come out. And it just feels like you could reach up there and touch one of those stars because you're so high in the sky. You can get all the way to the top of that mountain and feel really heavenly. But you know what you can't do? Is take one more step up after that. You get to the top of the mountain and you're at the top of the mountain. You can't actually reach up and grab one of those stars. It feels heavenly to be up there, but you cannot keep walking all the way up into heaven. And all of the status we would want to seek in the world, all the ladders we would want to climb in the world, all the wisdom that we would want to learn, it can start to feel heavenly when you get high up there. But what you can't do is cross the threshold and get into heaven where God is because he's not found that way.
So if that's not how you find God, how do you find God? Well, that's the second half of that verse. The world did not know God through wisdom, but it goes on to say it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So you can't find God by climbing up the Harvard ladder. You can't find God by climbing up the business world. How can you find God? Well, he finds you by the preaching of the message that the world thinks is the most foolish message of all time, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It saves those who believe. So if you want to find God, what you have to do is read on a page the message of Jesus Christ or hear the message of Jesus Christ proclaimed. And he says, this is how you come back and have a relationship with me through this news that the world believes is foolish. Jesus says, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there's not a mountain high enough. There's not a ladder you can climb. There is no stairway to heaven. There is only Jesus Christ, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And so that means, yet again, we should turn from chasing those ladders and climbing those ladders to him. That's the only way that we can find God. And so the second reason to turn from chasing status to chasing Jesus is that we cannot get wise enough or climb high enough to find God. Before we go into the third one, let me take a break and just proclaim to you what that message is. Uh, How bad would it be if I told you that the gospel of Jesus was the only way to be saved and then never told you what the gospel was, right? You must hear the gospel to be saved or read it to be saved. You must believe it to be saved. So this message that Paul says saves those who believe, those who put their trust in this message I'm about to proclaim, those are the ones who find God and are saved. The gospel message is very simply that this Jesus Christ that we talk about all the time here really was God in the flesh as a human. He's 100% human and 100% God, my childhood Sunday school teacher used to say. And he lived in perfection. He did not sin once. Uh, But then he died a terrible death anyway, and then he rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven where he rules the universe now. And the reason he did those things is that all who believe in him get the credit for his perfect life. When God looks at your record, he sees Jesus' record instead. Oh, sinless, perfect, spotless, great. And then he died a death to pay for our sins. So when God looks upon our sins, he says, paid for, paid for, paid for, no need to worry. And then he rose from the dead to guarantee us eternal life. So that as Jesus said to that one man, get up and walk, when Jesus returns one day, he will say to you, if you have died, get up and walk, and you will get up and live with him forever. And he rules now in heaven every action that has in the universe for the good of those who believe in him. To believe in him is just to look at him and say, I believe that is true about you, Jesus. Would you do those things for me? It is a trust in him to save you completely from sin, from death, and everything else. Those who believe believe in that message are saved. Those who believe in that message find what the people at the top of the Harvard ladder cannot find. They find God. And so my call to you is to put your faith in this Jesus Christ and trust this Jesus Christ. So there are two reasons to turn from chasing status to chasing Jesus. Let's go on to the third one. Uh, 
The third is that when Jesus returns, he will make worldly status worthless. This goes along with what the scripture teaches in many places. Jesus is going to come back. He will judge the living and dead when he does. And when he does so, he will do it impartially. He will not show favor to those who have a high office, and he will not be harsher on those who have a lower office. And so, to put it really simply, whatever status you have in the world right now, if you're the father in your home, or the wife in your home, or the child in your home that some listen to, or the child that nobody listens to, uh, if you're the person at work that everyone listens to, or if you're the, the bottom of the ladder at work, wherever you are, whatever your status is, when Jesus comes back, that status will not matter anymore, and it will never matter again. Jesus will take all of that and make it worthless and meaningless. He will instead arrange that hierarchy however he wants to, according to our faithfulness to love God and love others through faith in Jesus Christ. We see this in verse 28, just a fraction of that sentence. The way it's worded is rather interesting. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, and here's the part we get it from, to bring to nothing the things that are. That way nobody boasts in the presence of God. So when you go before him in judgment, you're not going to be able to boast about how great you are in this world. No, he'll judge impartially, and he will bring to nothing those things that are. He will bring your Grammys and your Oscars and the awards you got at work, and he will bring them to nothing and say, what about you? What, what are your actions? And he will judge you impartially. So we see that there, that those things that are, those things that we put our confidence in here in the world, those status symbols, he's going to bring them to nothing when he comes back. There's a parable that kind of gives us a picture of this in the Gospels. Um, Jesus tells the story of a, a great king who goes away and he leaves uh, with three servants, different amounts of money to care for. So they're all servants, they're all lowly in the house, but one gets 10 talents, that's a lot of money. And he says, invest this, see what return you can get for me while I'm gone, I'll be back. Gives the next one five talents, tells him the same thing, invest these five talents, uh, I'll be back, see what return you can get. Gives the last one one talent and same charge to him. Goes off on his journey, he comes back, and he calls the three servants to him, and judgment day has come. And the first servant says, you gave me 10 talents, and I, I've produced 10 more. Here, have yours and the 10 more that I was able to produce. And Jesus says, well done, good and faithful sir. You've been faithful a little, I'll set you over more. I will put you in charge of 10 cities, All right? So now his status as servant does not matter anymore. No, he is a king of 10 cities, which is tremendous in the ancient world. And he gets that because he was, as Jesus says, faithful with a little, and so I'm setting you over more. It wasn't his status, it was his faithfulness that earned him that. Similar thing happens with the servant who got five talents. He said, you gave me five, here's five more, right? Now you got 10. And the Lord says to him, well done, good and faithful, sir. You've been faithful with little, I'll put you over much. Here, come and share in my happiness, I'll put you over five cities, right? Same process, he was faithful produced for him with what his master gave to him and he's rewarded his status as a servant does not matter anymore he's king of five cities and then the third servant comes to him and he says I am scared of you I think of you as a harsh man and I was scared about what would happen to me and so I didn't invest it I just buried it here you can have your talent back at least you're getting back what is yours 
And his master says to him, you, you worthless servant, you wicked servant, and casts him out. Right? He didn't cast him out because he was given fewer talents, and he didn't cast him out because of his status as servant in the home. It was because he was faithless, and he had a wrong view of his master. And in the same way, when we go before Jesus for judgment, even those of us who are believers who are washed by the blood to receive our reward for our deeds here on earth, it's not your status that he's going to judge you for. It's what you did with what he gave you. Did you use what he gave you to love God and love others? Or did you get scared and buried? Or did you turn it into something you could use to your, for yourself and, and feed your ego? The reward we receive in the coming kingdom is based on that, not based on how high we are. From that day forward, those two men who were put over cities were no longer servants, were they? They were kings. And when Jesus comes back, there will be a firm cut like that. Your status won't matter anymore. Jesus says the one who is greatest among you should be your servant, right? He begins to flip this over in real life. Those of you who have power, those of you who have status, use it to serve others. Use it to love others for the same reason. And this is because when Jesus judges, he judges impartially. And I would bet that that's what you want him to do, right? Do any of us want a God who shows special favor to the high and lofty? Ah, he can do that. He's the boss, right? Or who is excessively harsh on the lowly and says, I know I can get away with being mean to you. Everybody else can. No, we don't want a God who does that. We want him to judge fairly, and he will. But in order to do that, your status in this world, if it's high, has to become meaningless when you go before him in judgment when he returns. So that means then the status you hold here, the position you have here, it's real. It matters, but it is not forever. By contrast, Jesus Christ is forever, right? The grass dies, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So will you spend your life seeking after something that will matter for a little bit and change your life for a little bit and then at the end of all things be worth nothing? Or will you spend your life chasing after the one who is already yours forever and can be yours forever? As the psalmist says, who have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fade, but the Lord is my portion forever. What a better gift to have from the Lord, his very self who is forever. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So chase after him and you have him forever. The last reason to turn from chasing status to chasing Jesus is related to the one we just did. These two work in a pair too. Uh, if the last one is that Jesus will make our status worthless one day, this one is that he is already making our status worthless by choosing the lowly instead of the lofty. That's actually the point he spends more time on in this paragraph. Let me walk you through verses 26 to 29. You can see the difference. He makes it really plain here. He says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standard. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Right? He's finding very nice ways to say, you guys were a bunch of losers when you came to Jesus. Right? You were low in the world. But that's good news because of verse 27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. So he, so he chose the lowly one. He chose to save the foolish ones so that it would be evident how foolish the wisdom of the wise is. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He saved a lot of weak people and passed over a lot of strong people to show that their strength was worthless. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. So if you've ever looked around and noticed, it's not very often that an elite intellectual comes to Jesus Christ. It's not very often that the highest level of musician in Nashville comes to Jesus Christ. It's not very often that a Super Bowl winning quarterback converts and comes to Christ. Not very often that a president converts while attention is on him. Sometimes converted people rise up into those ranks, but it's very rare that someone in those ranks turns to Jesus Christ when they have that. But all of the time, we see the lowliest of people, the last people you'd ever think would want to come into the kingdom, they come into the kingdom, right? And it's a puzzling thing, right? Uh, but the Lord says in those words, I did that on purpose. I did that to show that it doesn't do you any good to be president before me. I did that to show that it doesn't do any good to rule Nashville before me. I chose the lowly ones to shame the ones who are in high positions, And so when you look at it like that, you think of it that way, it's kind of like, well, is that status worth anything at all then? If God tends to choose the ones who are lowly, maybe maybe I don't even want to be lofty in the first place. And in that way, God is making status already worthless. It's not enough to lead you to the Lord and blinds you to what's most important And the real world effect of that means that very few of the upper echelon of our society come to Jesus Christ. So you still want to be famous? No, really, right? I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather keep going with what I've got here. So in that way, he's made status kind of worthless already. That will come to full fruition when he returns, but it already kind of feels that way and loses its luster even now. Before we go into kind of wrapping this up, let me, let me try to apply what we've learned here to a couple of concrete situations. Because it's hard to think now, okay, should I try to get promoted at work? Still seems like a good thing. Like, should I try to do a good job and climb? Like, what do I do with this in the real world? Uh, so let me just give you a couple of scenarios. Uh, let's say that you, you work in a field where there are awards and distinctions, and you wind up getting an award, like teacher of the year or something like that. Uh, Now, I know in a lot of fields, those awards are silly and nobody cares about them, but let's just assume that this award matters in your field, right? People respect it and and it it matters. Uh, And you receive that award and now you're processing all this, that status is going away one day and it's kind of worthless already. Uh, what What do you make of the honor that you receive when you get an award like that? Uh, Well, it's not nothing. It's not meaningless, right? You really did get an award, hopefully because you really did good work. People really will respect you and that will alter your life in some ways. Maybe you give you opportunities to love God and love others better, Uh, but it's not going to last forever. And so it's not worth hanging your hat on. It's not worth attaching your identity to because it's good, but it's fleeting. Same thing with success. If you run a business and it has success, it's good. It affects a lot of people for the better, but it's fleeting, right? So you can't hang your hat on it. You can't call it home. You can't make it the thing that defines you. More than that, you can't seek those things to to please or justify yourself because they're empty in the end. They're hollow in the end. 
But what they do give you is an opportunity to love God and love others better. And that's what you will be rewarded for in the last day. So they might call you up there on stage to give an acceptance speech before a huge audience. And there's your chance to praise Jesus Christ and say, you guys would not believe what I was before he called me, but he's been good to me and he'll be good to you too. Now there's loving God with what he's given you. There's someone who says, Master, you gave me 10 talents and I've made 10 more. It gives back to him on what he has given to you. So the bottom line there would be don't seek it for yourself, but when those things come up, Take them as opportunities to love God and to love others better, not to satisfy yourself or to make your own life more fun. Similar process we might have if you're, uh, say you're up for a promotion at work. Uh, yeah, you probably do want that promotion, right? And so, so how do I process that, right? I don't want to chase after status. I don't want to climb the ladder, but it's a good promotion. Should I go for it? Well, the question to ask would be, could I love God and love others better in that position than in this position. And if so, then yeah, go for it and love God and love others better from that position. If you're doing it for that reason and not to justify yourself or not to prove yourself how great you are, not to get the honor and respect that you want, well then if you don't get it, you won't be really very disheartened, right? Okay, I was loving God and loving others fine from where I am and you can take that knock and you're just fine. Or if you do get it, it won't go to your head because you're looking out for how to love God and how to love others better. So the heart matter here is to stop seeking after the things that we want and reaching for good in the world and instead just take whatever God gives and use it to love God and love others better. This is something of what Jesus means when he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, right? And then all these other things will be added unto you. And so, church, my call to you is let's seek first the kingdom of heaven. The reason we need a call like this, a warning like this, now the Corinthian church had fallen deep into this. It's a temptation before us here. The reason we need it might be explained best in the parable of the sower that Jesus tells. Are you familiar with this, right? Uh, a man sows his seed all over the place, right? A farmer sowing seed all over the place. And some of it lands on good soil, and it takes root, and it produces lots of fruit. And some of it falls on the path, and the birds come and take it away before it even takes root. And some of it falls among the thorns, and it begins to grow, but the thorns choke it, and it never produces any fruit, right? And he says later that those thorns represent those who hear the word and in a sense receive it, but they're choked out by the cares of the world, right? And then they never wind up really maturing or maybe it was never real faith in the first place. In a world that we live in where there's lots of opportunity, lots of ways to spend your money, lots of ladders that you could climb, devices in our pocket that are even training us on how to earn the approval of the world, we live among a gigantic thorn bush, don't we? And the cares of the world can begin to reach in and choke us out and shred our souls, even shred our faith in Jesus Christ. And so God writes words like this to us to say, what you could have in worldly status is worth so little compared to having Jesus Christ forever. And so church, seek that kingdom, seek him. He is good and he's yours forever. Let's pray.